Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. My next guest is a Perth-based author who's written three novels in the last four years and still manages to work as a physiotherapist in a practice she owns with her husband. Her debut novel, Love at First Flight, won Book of the Year in the Osram Today Reader's Choice Awards in 2015, and her second novel, Beautiful Messy Love, was listed by retailers Booktopia, Reading and Better Reading as one of the best books of 2017. Her latest novel, Love and Other Battles, is due to hit shelves around Australia in a couple of weeks' time, and I, for one, think readers around Australia are going to love it. I'm thrilled to welcome Tess Woods to the podcast today. Hi, Tess. Hi, Claudine. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, Tess, I'm a bit of a sucker for multi-generational stories, and this one was no exception. I absolutely loved it. But for those who haven't read it yet, can you tell me a little bit about the book and also what inspired you to write it? It's a multi-generational story. It's about three generations of Australian women, and it spans 50 years. So the story starts in 1969, and it ends in 2019. Um, and there's three main protagonists. So the first one is Jess, the matriarch. She's the grandmother. And the story begins when she's a young hippie protesting against the Vietnam War, and then she finds herself falling in love with a young drafted soldier called Frank Stone. And there's Frank and Jess's daughter, Jamie, who she has a pretty toxic relationship as a young woman in the 90s that scars her for life. And she's now a single mum, raising her teenage daughter, also caring for her ageing parents in the contemporary part of the story. And finally, there's CJ. She's a 17-year-old. She's a hippie at heart, just like her grandma. And she ends up getting into a whole heap of trouble with a boy who's a pretty bad egg. So the story kind of centers around their, their all of their lives and their relationships with each other and especially what happens when things start to go quite wrong for them. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Fantastic. I think the mid-60s was one of the darker times of Australia's recent history. It was a time when the Australian government introduced national conscription to bolster troop numbers to fight in Vietnam, um, a decision which provoked a great deal of anti-government and anti-war sentiment, as you've alluded to. And I think you captured that sentiment so brilliantly in the novel. Can you tell me what research you did to flesh out this aspect of the story? Sure. I actually, um, shamefully, when I I really wanted to write a three-generational story and because I'm such a huge fan of the, the movie more than the book, actually, of The Notebook, I really wanted to do a war story and I wanted to have that older couple reflecting on times gone past. So I knew I, I wanted to bring in a war and the way it worked with my storyline was that it needed to be the Vietnam War. So that was kind of where I brought the Vietnam War into it, just because it fitted with the timeline. Mm -hmm. But I was just really ashamed of myself that I knew very little about it. All I knew really was what I'd seen in the Robin Williams movie and the kind of stereotyped Vietnam vet, you know, with the bike riding, bushy bearded. That was kind of what I pictured when I thought of Vietnam veterans in the Vietnam War. 
So I needed to do a lot of research. Um, and my research came from lots of different areas. I spoke to people who were around in that time and who had protested the Vietnam War themselves, um, mothers of friends of mine. And I spoke to Vietnam veterans in depth. I watched TV shows like, um, you know, things like Love Child and I watched documentaries and read a lot of resources. So I actually spent a whole month when I wasn't working in the clinic. So I had three days a week for a month where all I did when the kids were at school was research that period of time. And um, I'm really glad that it showed in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it um, added a, a, an extremely authentic experience um, as oh, a reader. That's wonderful to hear. Tess, you're not shy about coming forward and talking about some of the harder issues we face as a modern society. In Beautiful yeah. Messy Love, you deal with difficult topics such as the refugee crisis, along with racial and religious prejudice, interracial and interfaith relationships as well. And in this yeah. new book, you examine some of the more ubiquitous issues facing teenagers and their parents, things like drugs, self-harm, consent and sexting, for example. Yeah. Was, was this something or was, was there something specific that prompted you to write about these issues? Yeah, I um, I knew when I wrote my first book, um, Love at First Flight, it was just this passion. It fell out of me in a passion. It, was, um, it wasn't planned and I just it almost like spewed out that story. But with my next two books, as I've had a chance to think about what I want to write about next, I definitely think about things that are important to me and things that I think need a light shone on them. So I'm very passionate about the asylum seeker crisis. I think it's our biggest shame as a nation at the moment, um, the fact that we have this horrible situation. So that was very important to me to write about in Beautiful Messy Love. And now as the mother of you know, a teenage son and a teenage daughter, that it, it was almost like I lived my nightmare on the page because um, like our, our generation of parents, we're, we're almost underwater. We can't look to the past to see what generations before us did to raise teens in a digital age because we're the first ones doing it. It's like our children are pioneers um, you know, exploring adolescence where it's a time where you make horrible mistakes, which is really what being a teenager is about, is about making mistakes and learning and growing from that. And our teenagers today, if they make a mistake, it can be captured in a screenshot, it can be uploaded to YouTube. Girls who have always, you know, in a whole history of time, have wanted to please boys and um, as especially as young, impressionable teenage girls have always wanted to please boys. Boys have always wanted to look. It's just the way things are. And now we have, you know, phone cameras and the internet and it's just a recipe for disaster for these young girls. So I really wanted to explore that. It was something that had been playing on my own mind and thinking, you know, what if this was me? What if this was my daughter? What if this was our family? How would I cope if she was the victim of revenge porn? How would I cope if either of my children was self-harming? And so I just put myself into that situation. And, um, yeah, I guess just something that perhaps parents of other teens will be able to relate to was 
things that we're frightened of and things that worry us that we don't really have answers for at the moment. I'm fascinated to hear you say that because as a parent of teenagers myself, I found the relationship between Jamie and her daughter CJ quite frightening. Um, It gave me the unnerving sense that sometimes no matter what we do or how supportive and communicative we are with our children, that there's always the chance they'll make that one wrong turn and end up in exactly the situation we tried so hard to keep them out of. Um, And you really didn't let Jamie off the hook. (laughs) I feel really passionately that we are still, even though there's been so much said and done in the media to try and empower girls, we're still, our psyche, like as a whole, I think, is still victim blaming. Mm. And girls who are just really... um, they're just trying to figure life out. They're just making making mistakes as they try and figure life out, which is what we all do. Um, girls who send selfies to boys are still judged and there's very little judgment on the boys mm. who are asking and receiving and sharing these selfies. And it's still like, well, you know, you wouldn't be in so much trouble if you hadn't have taken the photo. So there's still that victim blaming on girls. And they're slut-shamed. And I think it's just so unfair that this happens to girls. And so what the point I wanted to make was parents can't, we can't control this. We, no matter what we do, you know, I've been front and centre at every single time my school has had a raising resilient, happy kids and kids in the internet and how to protect your children from the internet. I've been at all of those meetings. I have... um, talked about consent with my children till I'm blue in the face Mm. and I have a friend a a really close friend whose daughter is slightly older than mine and she's the same just a very engaged um, caring mum who's just really on top of things and her daughter's life was almost ruined because of one photo that she sent a boy Mm. and so the point that I wanted to make was it it does it makes no difference where the child is coming from socioeconomically, whether they have parents that are engaged, parents that aren't engaged, all of that kind of stuff that we tend to victimise these girls and pigeonhole them and think of them as a certain, you know, type of girl that's going to do that. And it's so far from the truth. It could happen to anybody. I mean, we can obviously still do our best and still try and give our kids the tools to make good decisions and be there for them and support them and all of those kind of things. I'm not saying, you know, for a moment let's just not do that because there's no point. Mm. We can still, you know, arm them with the tools that we think they need. But in the end, these are teenagers and teenagers will make mistakes and it's just so unfair that for girls who are making these kind of, you know, errors of judgment now when they're still so young and impressionable that, you know, their brains aren't even fully formed that the consequences are so disastrous for them is just incredibly unfair. So for me, it was just really important to put that out there that we can't judge parents whose, you know, children end up being online bullied or, you know, making mistakes. And we can't judge children. All we need to do is grow in understanding and cut these kids some slack and maybe put the focus more on, boys requesting these photos and sharing them rather than girls taking them so i'm just changing tack just a little bit Uh, i 
wanted to ask you about Generation Girls. Um, how did that yeah. project come about and did this project give you the impetus you needed to write CJ's story? Um, I had actually written CJ's story before I did Generation Girls, but I certainly in the edits and, you know, I certainly did bring some of the stories that these girls shared with me into the story. But for, for the most part, it was done. Um, CJ's story mostly came from a young woman who's very close to me um, and is part of our extended family who um, tried to take her own life a few years ago. She's in her early 20s now, but who just was um, severely self-harmed. She's got, you know, scars all over her arms and legs and she's just such a terrible shame for her that she has to live the rest of her life with these scars from her teenage years. Um, so my story for CJ came from doing interviews with her and also just from, um, yeah, my girlfriend who I'm very close to, whose daughter was just really unfairly victimised. So that was mostly where the story came from. But with Generation Girls, I um, I guess I just really wanted to arm girls with the tools to make good decisions. And that came from working with Share the Dignity, um, doing Meals by Mums and just having a lot to to um, well, just having a lot of insight into homelessness, especially in WA, and just the really sad statistic that for so many um, females who are homeless is because of domestic abuse. And that's because they've ended up in relationships that are really bad for them and they feel safer, you know, in shelters or actually out sleeping rough on the streets than in their own homes. Mm. And I... Um, a couple of years ago, I was actually having lunch. I don't know if you know um, Rebecca Sparrow, who does a lot of stuff for teenage girls. Yeah. Um, I was having lunch with Beck Sparrow, and I, I was really kind of pouring my heart out to her about how desperately hopeless it feels to work with girls who are in their early 20s who feel they have no future mm. and just, just how sad it made me. And she said to me, you know, if this is – something that really affects you, you should be striking before they get to that stage. And that planted the seed of I would really like to work with teenage girls who are at risk and I'd love to just give these girls some just love and confidence and um, just to, to strive and to think that they deserve better than settling for someone who's going to hurt them. So I um, contacted a teacher at Balladura Community College and she was amazing. She was very supportive and um, we chose, well, she chose 12 girls who were bright and engaged and motivated and she knew would thrive doing a program and really commit to it. And these were all girls who had had pretty tough lives leading up to that stage. These are definitely not girls who come from privilege and Nine of the 12 actually even had English as a second language. Mm. Um, and so I started a creative writing program with these girls and I would get together with them on a Friday and we'd spend a few hours together and we picked a topic each time that was really relevant to them. So we did sex and consent, we did female friendships, um, how they could engage in the community as adults and what they had to offer and career options and that kind of stuff. But we based it all around um, literature because what they had to do was then write me a piece 
on that topic and we had a book club where we were reading young adult books and it became a really beautiful little community for these girls from different year levels who actually formed a really gorgeous bond and they kept going with a book club once I finished the program with them. So we did that for the first six months of the year last year and then for the last six months we worked on an anthology for them and we put the best of their stories and poems and letters together in a book that was very kindly um, published by Serenity Press who took us on and it was great. And then they decided um, these gorgeous girls who none of them are wealthy by a long stretch um, didn't take a cent of profit themselves. They gave it all to Books in Homes. So we raised a lot of money for Books in Homes through it and it was just a it was a really amazing project. And I've now I'm now privy to these girls and just seeing them grow and flourish since I've finished with them and yeah, they're an amazing group of children. Well, young late young women now. In the same way that you don't shy away, shy away from some of those harder issues in your writing, you don't shy, shy away from throwing yourself behind causes you believe in, like share the dignity, which you've mentioned before, yeah. and and just yeah. recently, twelve buckets. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just about. I've just joined twelve buckets, which is great. Um, I really wanted to join last year, but we were organising the West Coast Fiction Festival, which was huge, and I was really worried that my husband would divorce me if I took on one more thing. So, so for the sake of the marriage, I put on 12 buckets this year. Um, but, yeah, I'm actually I'm leaving for book tour in a couple of weeks, and I start with, um, yeah, my child who is 12 years old. So I start with her in July and we're going to be having um, one day a week where we get together, just the two of us. And, yeah, I'm really looking forward to helping her, you know, just realise her full potential, I think, and having someone who's going to be there by her side through her education. So I think that'll be really just a really amazing experience for me um, personally as well to be allowed to do that. I think it's such a privilege to given that chance to you know help a child yeah absolutely and I was going to ask you do you think that these activities help fill your creative well yeah look I think they make me feel whole you know I feel that when I'm not contributing I I know that I contribute you know in my home as a mother and um, as a wife and but I also feel the need to contribute you know to the community so I guess when I do that, I'm in a better place. And when I'm in a good place, I can write well. I can't, I find it impossible to write if I'm feeling down and stressed. Mm. Um, so these things, the things that kind of balance me out definitely help. Um, and I think it, it gives you an empathy for writing when you are with people who show you different different um, paths of life, I guess, and the different roads that have been taken um, and not all of them are, you know, rosy. I guess it just gives you a greater empathy for writing. So um, I guess in that way, yeah, I definitely try and not kind of bring in direct stories of people that I deal with um, who might be homeless or struggling or whatever. Um, I don't think that's really my story to tell. But, yeah, I guess maybe it just gives me a bit more heart when I'm writing. Yeah, definitely. Now, Uh, use of medical 
cannabis and euthanasia are two additional topics you touch on in this new book. And whilst I don't want to give away any spoilers, I wondered whether as an allied health professional you see the need for Australia to re-examine our laws to prevent people taking chronic pain management and end-of-life decisions into their own hands. Yeah, look, I definitely do. I've spent many years working in nursing homes um, and seeing people who have really, really, they've lost the will to live and it's so heartbreaking for them and their families and they're just left to suffer. And mostly that storyline came from my father-in-law who has passed away and who I was incredibly close to. I just adored him. And he had Parkinson's disease and he was this larger than life, just really gregarious, everyone who met him loved him kind of man. And we just saw that disease eat away at him. And he had absolutely no agency in deciding about his life. And, you know, it was just a government decision um, and they had decided no. And luckily, um, well, not so luckily, but that's kind of probably not the right word, but he, um, he had a stroke and he passed away from his stroke. And we felt that that was like a little bit of divine intervention that saved him from years more of struggle because Parkinson's disease usually, you know, it doesn't kill you. Mm-hmm. It's a chronic disease. It just gets, and it's progressive and it gets worse and worse and worse. So, you know, I was treating patients in nursing homes with Parkinson's disease that really they just they had lost all communication and they were in pain and they were stiff and they was just it was really heartbreaking. Mm. And to think that my father in law could have ended up like that had his life continued for, you know, years longer was just devastating to all of us and to him as well. He didn't want that at all. Um but, you know, he, he also wasn't prepared to, to do it illegally either. Yeah. So that is the way he would have ended up. So I guess that's what I wanted to, yeah, explore. The, just the agency of the elderly who are in pain and who, who don't want this anymore. You know, where's, where are their rights? Where are their human rights to decide what they want? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the strongest and most poignant aspects of this book, in my opinion, was the relationship between Jess and Frank. And I must say, I didn't see the twist at the end of this book coming. And I'm usually very good at spotting the clues. But on this occasion, I riffled back through the pages to see what clues I'd missed, but I couldn't find them. And um, yeah, it kind of broke my heart, I have to say, Tess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, I've, I've, I just really felt Frank. He's just a character that I fell in love with and he's inspired by a true story by a um, returned Vietnam veteran called Mike Byron who helped me so much with this book. I think we were just, you know, in constant communication when I was writing draft and then, again, he helped me through edits um, and he just shared so much of his story with me. And I think it was having that very real man in my mind that helped Frank come to the page mm. so much. So, you know, I kind of fell in love with him a little bit too, <laughs> as well as Jess. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Really great. Now, not only do you continue to practice as a physiotherapist and engage in community work, but you also do work to support other authors. Can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of activities that involves? 
Yeah, so I do retreats. Um, I, I've been running a retreat once a year for the last few years. I'm about to take another lot of retreaters off this December, but I haven't really, that one never kind of made it to social media or anything because I'm so, I've just, I've got a waiting list of people. So I was able to just ask those people rather than advertising this one. So this one hasn't even been announced yet. You're getting an exclusive. <laughs> um, Fantastic. <laughs> so I've got a December retreat coming up. But, yeah, I, I really um, I draw a lot of energy from other writers. So I enjoy spending time with them and I like helping them, you know, I guess bring out their best writing um and just I find that when I share the things that have gone wrong for me the things that have gone right for me that tends to be the the number one thing that writers want to know they they want to know your secrets they want to know what you did that worked what you did that didn't um so I I sort of mix my my retreats up with a little bit of stuff about my actual stories you know what worked structurally what did I find helped that kind of stuff and a bit about the industry as well, about pitching and marketing and things that I've tried and failed, things that have been successful on, you know, Facebook or my website and just those kinds of things. Um, and I love to see the community that builds when I go on retreat because every time I've taken a group of writers away on retreat, there's been friendships that have built there and lasted and are still, you know, they're, they're still communicating and I really love that aspect of it as well. Um, and I do a little bit of manuscript appraisal as well. So I, writers send me their work and I'm not a professional editor, but it's, it's more just, um, you know, coming from my heart of what I think is going to, what I can see working, what I think isn't working, what I think is commercial. Because um, I really like to, I'm very interested in the mechanics of the industry and what's selling, what's not, what covers seem to be working. I've just got this very curious mind. So I tend to apply that to the manuscripts that come my way as well. And yeah, it keeps the mind ticking over. Yeah, that's brilliant. So I wanted to ask yeah. you as well, I mean, there are lots of aspiring writers who listen to this podcast um, and I yeah. wanted to know what would be the best bit of advice that you can give to any aspiring writer out there? I would say over and above everything else, finish your drafts, um, make time. If you have to say, if you're a mum who works, you know, which is which was my situation, you are not going to find time to sit there and write a book during the day. You need to either do it at night or you need to set your alarm early, um, make some sacrifices, you know, <laughs> don't watch Netflix, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You just need to give some stuff up to find the time to write and don't stop until you finish that first draft because once you've got a book in front of you and it's finished, it's a lot easier to find the motivation to then edit it and pitch it. And But if you've been working on the same book for seven years, it's very easy to lose that motivation. So I think just keep going until you're finished and write above anything else, above you, you know, getting social media and connecting with other writers and all that kind of stuff is great, but you need to have written a book to actually get somewhere. So make sure that you finish that first book. Are you working on anything else at the moment? No, I'm not. And I'm crapping myself because I know I have to see my agent in a couple of weeks. And she's going to ask me what I'm working on next. Um, I found it. 
I worked on Love and Other Battles at the same time I was working on Beautiful Messy Love, and I I actually did I didn't cope. Um, I ended up bringing my publisher in tears. You know, crying's great. It always works when you want to get your way. Um, so I ended up bringing my publisher in tears and just saying, I can't do it. I need more time. And um, she was great. And we had a whole, she gave me a whole extra year. So this book was supposed to be released last year, but it's been released this year. Um, and I just made it a point of not even thinking about another book until this book's done. And I don't really... Um, I guess I'm, it, it comes from a position of privilege too. I'm not relying on it as my only source of income. Like I have my day job as a physiotherapist that I'm getting, you know, our money's, you know, for the mortgage that's coming from there. So I'm not relying on my writing to pay off the mortgage. Um, so I guess I can take my time a little bit more. And, yeah, right now I'm just thinking um, I need a break just to refresh and, Hopefully, I don't know, I'm looking at Facebook, an idea pops out at me of a story that I see, which is how my ideas tend to come from, you know, the most random places. So, yeah, at the moment, there's nothing lined up just yet. Well, I mean, you know, you're a pretty busy lady, let's face it. (laughs) I am. I am pretty busy and I'm really lucky that I've got just a superb agent who has managed to wangle me one book deals three books in a row which I think is kind of unheard of in the industry um and it's been fantastic for me because I've never felt that pressure that I have to produce another book it's always been that I wanted to produce another book um and so just having that I guess freedom of not having a deadline for my next one and knowing that I can just write it when I want to write it I'm hoping that yeah it just comes once this once this book is done and dusted so Tess if listeners wanted to connect with you where can they find you they can look for me on Twitter but they're not going to have much joy there because I have an account mostly so my publisher can tag me but I'm never there myself so I'm there in spirit on Twitter but I am really active on Facebook and on Instagram under Tess Woods author and I also have um, a website that I update every month as well with all the latest goings on and my events and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, that's just tesswoods.com.au. Fabulous. Tess, I'm so happy to have had the chance to chat to you today. Thank you for joining me on Thank Talking you. Aussie Books. Thank you, Claudine. Thanks so much for making time for me. It's my pleasure. I wish you every success with the upcoming uh, book tour uh, for Love and Other Battles. And I look forward to catching up with you um, on one of those um, book tour events. Oh, thank you. I'm really looking forward to meeting you. Likewise. Now, listeners, for a chance to get your hands on a signed copy of this heartwarming novel, you know what to do. Head over to my Instagram or Facebook account and follow the directions to enter the draw to win. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.